0: programming throwdown episode 78 building and testing web services with postman take it away jason hey everyone so i'm here uh with Abhinav astana and um we're going to be talking all about web services and um you know, before we jump into web services and REST and API and all these things, Abhinav, why don't you kind of uh, introduce yourself? Tell us to, sort of your background. Um, you know, and tell us a bit about Postman.
1: Sure. Yeah. Thank you, Patrick and Jason, for having me on the podcast. Really great to be here. Um, so let me start a, a little bit with a little bit about myself. You know, I uh, have been a programmer uh, most of my life. Uh, until recently kind of you know moved into something more uh on the management side i'd say uh so i started you know programming kind of in sixth grade have uh, been a self-taught programmer uh, uh got an engineering degree but that was kind of in electronics so uh, so
0: what what did like, you, you make in sixth grade like a video <laughs> game or something
1: uh, so I started with, uh, you know, first I started with basic, you know, like the uh, the stuff that was taught in school. And then I kind of went to uh, C++ and my dad was like, you know, very interested in programming. So he used to learn stuff like Visual Basic and Visual Fox Pro. So i kind of picked that really up. And uh, from there, I kind of went to Flash and ActionScript. Okay. And... Uh, yeah, and then ended up making a web app through some you know sequence of things on PHP and MySQL. That's that's what I remember. Cool, cool. Cool. yeah. So uh, yeah, you know, I've been uh, working on code for a while, and uh, uh, through you know this kind of experience of like writing code, ended up uh, uh, doing a bunch of uh, stuff, I'd say, Semi, uh, semi-professionally semi along the way kind of used you know we uh, I had a bunch of friends uh, uh, in school and in college we used to kind of you know design and develop apps and websites for uh, other people you know we take up consulting projects uh, kind of get paid for it which was pretty cool well that's, and, that's pretty uh,
0: like uh, entrepreneurial right like you're in college and you're you know, doing these projects on the side and kind of already sort of starting a business and getting a brand and all of that.
1: Uh, yeah, you know, it was a uh, it was. I I like coding a lot, and you know, it's doubly uh, awesome if you get paid for it. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. Working with <laughs> clients at that time was tricky because you know you have uh, school to kind of go to, but but I liked it a lot, and it it taught me a lot in the process, and I kind of you know knew that. Uh, whatever I'm going to do after college is going to be related to uh, programming or, uh, or you know, designing something. I didn't know about products very w- well at that time. Uh, you know, I, we just used to uh, uh, work on, like, websites or kind of web applications uh, then. But, yeah, kind of after college, I found my first company uh, uh, with a bunch of folks that was called Teleport Me. And there I was uh, basically uh, building kind of uh, what you might call like a social street view sort of a thing this is in 2010 uh we were kind of building uh a, a, an app that would help you kind of capture panoramas and share it with uh, the rest of the world and we built that on android so it kind of got featured on the android app platform so it was pretty interesting we raised a bunch of money and uh, had a lot of fun uh, you know while working on it but uh, uh, you know, kind of after that, I started Postman uh, as a company. So, uh, Postman has a project had kind of existed for a while. Like, you know, as I was coding and working on stuff, you know, I used to work with APIs a lot, and uh, Postman kind of came off as a side project of mine. And now, you know, of course, uh, you know, it's 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 like a uh, company with, you know, people and, you know, we have products and things like that. But yeah. Cool. You know, so, hopefully,
0: so we'll talk, yeah. we'll talk like more in detail about Postman, but just like, uh, can you give us
1: kind of a one liner
0: of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, what is the sort of core product?
1: Yeah. So Postman is an API dev environment, which helps you, uh, you know, design, test, debug, uh, document and monitor APIs.
0: Cool. That makes sense. So, uh, so is it specific to like web or is it, um, I mean, does it work with like shared libraries or, or it's it's probably mostly web, right?
1: Uh, yeah. So the APIs in this context that we help uh, uh, developers work with are HTTP APIs. Okay. Uh, it, uh, yeah. So if, if you have stuff kind of going over the network and its on HTTP, that's the stuff that we help you, you know, build and test.
0: Got it. That makes sense. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people, I mean, you know, even my grandmother, when she hears HTTP, she kind of knows, oh, it's the internet and web pages. And so most people have like a, a, a basic concept of, um, you know, I go to HTTP, you know, google.com and I get the search, the search box, right? Mm-hmm. Um. So, you know, what is sort of the difference between, you know, I type in google.com and you know the kind of web services that you're talking about, right? I mean, they have HTTP in common, but but mm-hmm. you know they're kind of very different sort of user experiences, right?
1: Yeah, I would say from uh, a user experience standpoint, they are different. You browse uh, websites using your browser, you know, whether it be Chrome or Safari or Internet Explorer. Uh, for APIs, you know, what we are seeing is essentially what used to be done, kind of in a very complicated way. Uh, a few years back uh, can also now be done on top of http so like the underlying technology is the same in one case it helps you uh, you know uh, produce websites and in the other cases it helps you connect applications together which is what kind of we call you know apis so yeah the underlying stuff uh, like the building blocks are the same but the way you use it is uh, uh, pretty different and uh, uh, I guess you know we can dig dig into that in more detail as we go through the talk. But uh, uh, one of the most interesting things that we have seen is that because of these two, uh, you know, things being built on the same uh, technology stack, you know, it has kind of led to the adoption of APIs. Uh, uh, you know, it has made the adoption kind of much faster over the years.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, and you can even, there's um, a lot of different websites will actually give you, uh, you give anyone access to sort of the more programmatic or I guess the, the API of their site. So for example, um, you can go to duck.go.com, which is a search engine, and you'll get the box and you can type in the box, you know, whatever you want to search for, dog, and you'll get a bunch of links to dogs and it'll look... Uh, you know, they'll uh, render that web page in a way where it kind of makes sense and it's pretty easy to navigate, right? But you can <laughs> actually do, and I think it's as simple as just Um And then, I think it's too technical, but then you put a little question mark, q <laughs> equals dog. So if you type that URL, um you're going to get something very different. You're going to get what's called JSON, which is... Uh, was it JavaScript object notation? I think, but JSON mm-hmm. is a, is a, its own language. And you're going to get just, it looks like just a bunch of source code. Um, but what that is, is that's, that's data that's been structured in a certain way. It's not going to look pretty. It's not going to look anything like the DuckDuckGo landing page you're used to. And that's because it's ultimately not really meant for humans to read. It's, um, it's a way for computers to, you know, or, or let's say computer clients. To go and 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 uh, you know make calls to DuckDuckGo, and then for programmers to get data in a way that they can easily interpret, um, and then they can choose to do whatever they want with that.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and that's that's I think one of the most interesting things about uh, you know things uh, like APIs. You know, you once you kind of get that data in that format, you can kind of do lots of cool things with it. Uh, like i remember kind of going back uh, you know when you had to kind of get data out of uh, a website you you would try probably write like a scraper or you'd write a script to kind of take data from you know whatever was uh, written into that document you know in that html document and you try to kind of build a uh, build build something to to get that now it's much easier you know you just kind of get the right uh, api url and uh, once you have that data and that structured format, you can you know, build applications or just you know, use it in very interesting ways.
0: Yeah, and a lot of public data, like for example, um, if you want to see all of the penalties uh, from a hockey team, well, the NHL has you know, uh, their database and they have a, a website. So you can go to, I don't know what the URL is offhand, but you could go to the NHL's uh, you know, website and you can put in, you can actually, you know, in your browser, type in, you know, a certain query and you will get back a bunch of data. And so, you know, if you look at all of these apps, they give you up to date scores on on sports events and things like that. Most of them are using this API and, you know, the census has an API. And so there's just a treasure trove of information that you can get. Um. So why how did this end up sort of getting tied together with. With HTTP as a protocol, in other words, like why did this evolve and not uh, something completely different that mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know would return the same data, right?
1: Yeah, no, that's a that's a really good question. So, uh, and and I kind of found the answer a bit later, or at least I thought about the answer a bit later after kind of Postman took off. So, uh, you know, uh, earlier I think a couple of decades back, there was this whole notion of like web services right so you had things like soap uh, uh, protocols and the whole idea was that okay when we want to transfer data kind of from one point to another uh, we uh, would build this protocol and this is the way things need to talk to each other it was pretty verbose and pretty complex and that didn't it it took off i guess within the enterprise but didn't really take off uh, so much in uh, within the wider kind of developer community what i saw and uh, what i myself used were was like things like frameworks Uh, for PHP or Python, you know, so whenever you'd be building uh, an application and you had to kind of get some data from the user, you would have a web form, uh, uh, you know, show up on your web page and then the uh, data would be transferred to your server using a post uh, HTTP call. So uh, I guess the APIs were there, but they were mostly in the background. Now, I I think uh, a a few key things happened that helped... uh, APIs uh, kind of grow on top of HTTP. Uh, So the first one I feel that was pretty significant was uh, the introduction of, uh, uh, you know, kind of the iPhone and uh, uh, the rise of smartphones in general. So what developers kind of started thinking was that I have to build an application uh, first for the browser and now for uh, a device. And I want to make sure that I do kind of less work and let me standardize on whatever framework i'm using but i'm going to make sure that this data gets sent off in a way that uh, you know my smartphone can con- consume so i think that was one bit and uh, uh, then along with that i felt uh, what what really helped uh, solidify this was uh, uh, ajax where you would basically query the server to make some uh, in page update uh, to your application and you would do, do it over XML, HTTP request. You know, that's, of course, as uh, people, you know, thought about the name, the name was kind of all wrong. But yeah, the core right. technology was built on on top of HTTP, right? So what I think slowly started happening was people really wanted to build, like, interact interactive applications uh, for the web and kind of more feature-rich applications for the smartphone. And, uh, you know, kind of developers typically take the most... Uh, a pragmatic approach, as if, if taken together as a whole, as a community. And they were like, yeah, you know, we have these building blocks available. We have these frameworks available. Uh, JSON as a data format is pretty uh, easy to use. That that kind of became the dominant format. And I guess it took off from that.
0: Yeah, that that totally makes sense. I remember, and I, I don't know exactly what year this is. I think it was around 2002. But uh, I was one of the first people on Gmail... And and uh, and I remember just being on Gmail, and then all of a sudden a new email arrived, um, mm-hmm. just while I was on the page on the web page, and that just blew my mind, right? And and I think similar people had a, that experience again when when they saw Google Maps, you know, a year or two later, and it's just you could just scroll forever, and it would just show you the next city, you know, the next city, and it just uh, it, it just it felt like. Uh, everything was on your machine, even though it was it was being fetched in real time, right? It gave you this illusion like you really had the whole earth on your laptop right, um, right. and so yeah, I think um, those are some incredibly powerful user experiences, and they only worked um with with web services because that's the only thing the browser really understood, yeah, yeah
1: absolutely. Uh, I mean, I I remember using Gmail back then. I think I waited for a while to kind of get the invite, but once I got it, I was like, wow, this is one of the coolest things. Uh, yeah. Because you know, you used to kind of refresh the web page, and it would would be like, you know, why why doesn't it this thing do it itself? And I think, yeah, I think everybody saw the experience, and then you know, we're like, yeah, we need to have that too.
0: Yeah, totally. Hey, Patrick, did you did you get a Gmail invite from me or no? It probably did come from you now that I think about it. That yeah, would have been was around the right time. So, so uh, um, yeah, so that uh, I remember giving invites to people. And there's times where they actually had a website where people were offering things for Gmail invites. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, the one, I don't remember all of them, but one of them was they would give you, they're a tour guide in New York City. And they would give you a tour of New York yeah. for free if you give them a Gmail invite. Um <laughs> wow. yeah, it was it was that trans, uh transformative a, a technology that people were just lying. Isn't that up. crazy? Yeah. You had to wait so long. Like so many people were waiting trying to get invites. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I got by yeah. through Topcoder, and then uh uh yeah, I gave everyone I knew, I gave as many invites as I could. I think I had seventy five invites to give out. Um or no, I think it was twenty, and then later on they gave me seventy five and I never used the extra seventy five.
1: Um. Wow, yeah, I remember when you know whoever would get the gmail invite like that person would be you know like they they get like this cred in the, in the <laughs> yeah. local community that this is the person who has gmail invites and they'll kind of I mean I guess that helped Gmail spread uh, like crazy. Uh, I guess the storage space and uh, the experience like all of it kind of came together. I mean, I still use Gmail. So there, right? Like, it's, yeah. It's, it I mean, It was a great product. Yeah, I'm sure looking. there's
0: some really fascinating marketing books written on, on you know how they really made the exclusivity just really drive up the value and and make everyone just just uh, talk about Gmail. <laughs>
1: I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So, um, getting more into you know testing and reliability and all of that. So, you know, let's say I. Build some web service, I, I spin up a AWS node. And, uh, you know, I, I have some web service. Um, you know, I, I build an express or, or one of these frameworks, right? Um, how can I make sure that's reliable, right? I mean, the machine could die, people could pass crazy things to my web service, it's totally exposed on the internet. So you know, I have to accept all sorts of you know requests that might be crazy. How do you build mm-hmm. a reliable web service with all that uncertainty?
1: So yeah, I guess that's that's a broad question. It kind of depends on the extent of you know how big the service is. Uh, I've seen kind of our own set of services go from like you know very simple things to really large things. But I guess let me start with uh, uh, the typical developer workflow, right? So one of the first things that I kind of observed was uh, the ability to kind of query the service and know its behavior. Uh, as a developer. So, you know, you're writing code and you're deploying code onto AWS and you kind of want to check whether the API works as expected. Uh, So, you know, you can uh, query it with tools like Postman. Uh, As your, uh, you know, service becomes more mature, you would probably want to write uh, more automated kind of tests for it. You know, you can check it of course, you know every now and then, but you can't be sure that when you're not checking, you know, it is working as expected. So you could, you know, build some automation around it, and there are, you know, whole, whole, a whole lot of ways in which you can kind of do that. Folks uh, can write unit tests. There are integration tests. Uh, lots of different options available here, uh, and uh, you know, once you have, uh, once you know that, okay, you know, most of this stuff is working. I've checked it manually, and I've checked it in an automated way. And I've deployed to production, and my service is working uh, out there. You can uh, monitor that service for correctness, you know, and whether it's uh, performing uh, up to you, up to expectations. So you can have an external kind of monitor set up to ping your service and let you know whether things are working as expected. Uh, and I guess on the notion of reliability, there are lots of you know, internal instrumentation that you could do uh, within the service to, you know, if you're emitting logs from the service and that uh, is something that you can process and check for uh, on the server side uh, and, you know, make sure that everything's working as expected. The way I kind of see it is that it kind of goes through uh, different stages and those stages kind of uh, depend on, you know, where you are in the development lifecycle. In the earlier stages, uh, you'd probably be more ad hoc kind of playing with the service yourself. And as you go more and more towards... uh, 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 you know, putting that service out in front of users, and it starts getting used. You uh, uh, you would tend to use more automated tools for that.
0: Got it. That makes sense. So it's kind of like uh, um, so, so. So the service kind of works like it. It makes this request. So, for example, going back to the DuckDuckGo example, um, you know, it it every day at two a.m. It does some query. Uh, it does some API call querying the word dog. And then on the back end, um, you're instrumenting that. Maybe there's some way to know, Hey, this is a, this is a, a, a test query. And so when you pass that flag, it starts, um, uh, you're keeping track of a lot more than it would otherwise. And, uh, it says, uh, you know, it makes sure, Hey, you know, did you, did you get a Did anything, you know, get returned back? Um, You know, maybe if, if there's no results or it never actually returned anything because it crashed or something like that, then it would send an email to some developer and say, hey, you know, the, the dog query, you know, failed today. And that person would know um, rather than having to wait until they get, um, you know, reports from real people who are trying to use it.
1: Yep, yep. That's that's uh that's how you you should actually do it because otherwise you have to get up in the middle of the night and <laughs> I've I've had those experiences. So yeah Yeah. <laughs> you should always sense. tend towards automation.
0: <laughs> cool, yeah, that makes sense. What about um what about throughput? Like uh you know, base, what happens when someone, you know, has just one machine that's servicing mm-hmm. requests and all of a sudden mm-hmm. They start hitting, you know, 1,000 QPS or 10,000 QPS or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, kind of kind of walk people through that sort of nightmare scenario and how they can sort of recover from that. I mean, it's, in a way, it's 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 a uh, um, it's a first world problem. It's like imagine uh, you know you have some web service that's part of some product, and all of a sudden you get featured number one on Hacker News, and uh, your web service just you know, crashes down to the ground. Like, how how do you sort of handle that?
1: So, uh, I I mean, you know, that's I would say if if you get featured on Hacker News and your service is getting popular, you know, it's it's kind of a good problem to have. Yeah. And uh, you know, in some ways, you can preempt that by uh, load testing your service or you know, kind of just making or simulating that scenario yourself. So that's what we recommend to like a lot of people. Ah, that I see. Uh, you know, without really, you know, waiting for that. I think you would want to do some levels of uh, simulation before you deploy. Uh, I, uh, in, in, what, in my experience, you know, what we have seen is that as a service becomes kind of more and more mature, you kind of layer the service with uh, different tools. Uh, and they help you kind of, uh, uh, you know, take in that load, distribute it across kind of different servers and make sure that uh, you know not like the load is kind of not on like one specific server uh, it, you know kind of happens over time but uh, you know let's say you start with a very simple application maybe taking the duck, duck, duck example that you had there right so in the initial phase you know one person is sending the service and you know uh, it it grows for a bit a few hundred people are using the service uh, in most scenarios uh, you you will be fine you know like uh, whatever you set up on aws is uh, going to be good enough to take that load but as uh, your usage starts kind of growing uh, you would probably want to make sure that it's not just one uh, uh, you know one server that's taking that load you might want to put a load balancer before it and instead of deploying your service on one server you deploy on multiple servers and what a load balancer does for you is uh, uh, kind of distribute the load according to an algorithm, and uh, it makes sure that uh, you know um, uh, your service kind of doesn't go down, right? So it takes in the service, redirects it to a particular. Uh, uh, sorry, it takes in an API call that comes into your service and distributes it to a particular server. The server does its job and uh, returns the response. If the server gets full, uh, you know it would send it to another server, and it kind of goes on. So. Uh, it really helps you uh, kind of add more servers and load balancers do like a very uh, simple job of routing. So they they will they can take in a lot of requests. So uh, so the
0: load balancer is that something that you have to really? There's probably like a it's probably generic, right? So it's probably you can just use something open source or or something commercially available, and it would probably handle almost every use case. Or or do you have to write something yourself?
1: Uh, no, the, most of these things are available. Uh, I, you know, lots of lots of options actually are available for load balancers. I think AWS has uh, something uh, pre-built, oh, okay. uh, and if you don't want to use that, uh, I don't remember exactly what uh, technology we use, but uh, yeah, you can get something pre-built from AWS, or you can pick up something from the open source world and and use it. You don't have to write a load balancer yourself.
0: Got it. That makes sense. So you talked a little bit about simulating. Um, you know events like simulating uh, you know what happens if i double my user base and things like that can you dive into a little more detail there like how do you actually simulate it just seems like such a chaotic system right where you have people all over the world trying to access something and then that volume of people kind of double like how can you uh you know kind of simulate how can you prepare for something like that
1: so uh, I can kind of explain it from uh, the perspective of Postman. We, we kind of looked at solving this problem uh, 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 you know, while building the product. So uh, you know, Postman lets you send like a request one at a time, right? So you you've built your service and you're sending, a requ- uh, sending requests one at a time. What uh, Postman lets you do and other tools also let you kind of do that is automate this sending process. Right? So what you want to do is uh, uh, kind of write out a scenario. So in most cases, your users will be uh, going through uh, certain flows in your application right? or in your uh, web service. So they might be hitting like you know, a, a few calls in a particular sequence. And uh, uh, the way most developers test stuff is that they're going to hit them one after the other. And uh, they'll be like, you know, yeah, that, that's done because it kind of works this way but what happens when your service uh, starts getting a lot of traffic and it has to scale up basically this activity is happening uh, you know several hundred times in a minute right so uh, what you would want to do is package this up uh, in this in the case of postman you can build a collection uh, that's postman's abstraction for grouping together api requests and uh, you can run it in one go using a tool that we provide called a uh, collection runner so you can just uh, run it uh, 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 in sequence and uh, essentially simulate the scenario of like you know sending one request after the other. Uh, what the collection runner also lets you do is uh, 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 let let you it lets you run it uh, across like several iterations. So very quickly it can you know send these requests one after the other, and you would get some basic sanity uh, in in your simulation scenario now we also have tools uh, that let you kind of export this uh, uh, collection out and uh, you can run it using an open source tool pro- uh, tool that we provide uh, using the terminal and you can run like multiple iterations of this uh, and you can run them in parallel so we're not very sophisticated there you have to kind of do some basic work there but once this uh, scenario kind of works for you and you have tested it uh, across You know, uh, this debugging process, and then through like some lightweight automation process, you can uh, use uh, a more professional load testing tool that's going to run this scenario uh, over and over again. And it can simulate like a more professional load testing tool can uh, send requests from different locations. So just think of uh, these calls being made from uh, places around the world. And uh, uh, once you kind of do that, then uh, what what you might start seeing in your server logs, uh, or kind of uh, in, in in your monitoring service, is that the server starts behaving differently than what you started out with, right? So when you start out building something, you have the most uh, uh, pristine kind of assumptions of uh, the service. But as uh, as your uh, syst- as as this load testing uh, system starts putting pressure on the server, your service might start behaving a little bit. Uh, erratically and you might uh, notice issues of state you might notice things kind of not working well between the server and between uh uh you know uh, the application that is supposed to kind of receive the data so lots of things can go wrong and uh uh you know what so it's 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 basically a progression of things one after the other and uh, yeah you you know we we would typically recommend doing this before you know, you get featured on Hacker News, <laughs> right? If that, that makes uh, sense. And That makes sense.
0: So, so basically, if if I uh, I have a decent user base, but I'm going to have this big, you know, I'm going to be at a Nvidia GTC or something, which is a big convention, um, mm-hmm. then I can uh, combine you know Postman with one of these professional tool, uh, uh, professional uh, load balancing, or or I guess uh, um, uh, professional like distributed. Uh, pinging type type tools where they'll make a bunch of requests and and all of a sudden it will feel like I have twice as many users, but half of them mm-hmm. are are fake. They're just um, you're kind of doing random things uh, on your service, like making random queries. But at least it's making sure that you have the throughput, so that when you go to that big conference, you turn that 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 thing off, and mm-hmm. and hopefully that gets replaced with real people, and it continues to to behave well.
1: Absolutely, yeah. So on 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 this side, you would have like load testing tools. On on the other side, from the perspective of the service, you'd probably have load balancers and a fleet of servers uh, ready to go. Uh, so you can you know kind of like uh, uh, make changes uh, without like bringing down the service. So yeah, you know this this setup uh, typically works for uh, uh, for mo- for most cases. Uh, I'm guessing if you, of course if you're Google or uh, you know, Facebook or you know, a large company that has like millions of users. This setup uh, will be much more sophisticated in its kind of complexity. But mm-hmm. if you're a developer or you're a startup uh, starting out, uh, this this would take you uh, through a long way.
0: That makes sense. So, like, uh, <clears throat> um, like when you have an actual website, um, there's there's this concept uh, or there's, there's this technology called cookies, which basically <laughs> means you you sign some information on the browser, um, <laughs> then some encrypted data goes to the server, and basically the, the server has the, uh, I'm trying to figure out a way to explain this really quickly, but let's just say the server has access to some data. Um, the server can pass that um, to the browser and the browser um, doesn't actually really know what it is. So, But the browser can pass it back to the server And then the server can decrypt it and say, okay, you know, this is sort of some state information, right? And so through the Mm -hmm. cookies, the server can – so for example, um, if you were to – and I I don't know if this is actually – Patrick, you can correct me on this. But, I mean, if if someone was to actually take the cookies off of your computer, um, they could probably log in as you, um, you know, on a website. Because that that cookie is sort of, you know, when it gets to the server, it's telling the server – that the servicer is going to unpack that cookie and then realize, okay, this person has already logged in, you know, five minutes ago. And so they're authenticated. Right. And so what is, is there, you know, when you're building web services, is there a concept of state and and how does that work? Like, I mean, do, do you still do cookies in a web service or, or is it done through some kind of token or something like that?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, cookies are uh, still used in, uh, uh, in, in authentication mechanisms in web services. Uh, in, in my view, they don't give the best experience uh, uh, to the developer uh, because your web service is going to be consumed uh, uh, outside the browser. So what essentially kind of happens in this uh, interaction is that the server uh, basically expects that okay, you know, there is some piece of identif- identifying information uh, when a call comes in to me, right? And uh, uh, when when a service is being called through a browser, a lot of this can be hidden behind the scene. like the cookie mechanism uh, takes care of it. And uh, wherever uh, you know if, if you're using an existing language framework, a lot of them, take care of this for you. So if you have built a web service and you're using uh, a language framework like Slim for PHP, or uh, I guess Ruby on Rails or something, then it will automatically kind of do it for you. But uh, uh, this can, like, consuming the service becomes harder uh, when you are doing it outside of the browser. So if you are kind of writing your own API client and you want to make a, c- a call uh, to that server, uh, typically uh, servers su- support a token mechanism, uh, or they would uh, support one of these uh, uh, authorization uh, authentication protocols like OAuth one, basic OAuth, or OAuth two. There are lots of these available, and uh, uh, what they what they help you do is kind of provide a scheme through which you can say that okay, I'm a valid user of this particular API call, uh, and uh, there are some optimizations. Uh, uh, you can make with uh, these systems. So let's say if you're using OAuth 2, you would have to uh, be registered with a service and then you're gonna get uh, one kind of a token and then you're gonna exchange this token with another token. And then finally, you you are in, uh, in an environment where you can make calls, but it's your responsibility to kind of keep the token unlike uh, the cookie mechanism where the browser does it for you. Uh, in this case, you would have to keep the token and manage the state of the token. And uh, in some cases, the server might say that the token is not valid anymore. More complex authentication schemes uh, uh, manage that. But uh, uh, in some cases, like basic auth, uh, you know, you can essentially uh, generate uh, a token and send it for a successful API call until, like, you know, the password changes. So when you move from uh, building web services for browsers. To kind of uh, web services that that have to be consumed in a wide variety of settings, you might want to adopt some of these more uh, uh, kind of uh, protocols that are more suited for this kind of authentication.
0: Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So basically, uh, you would have one uh, endpoint in your web service that's you know log in, and it would take the username and password, and it would return back some token, some really large number. And then once the person has done that, then the next time they try to call something else, like, you know, uh, give me all the search results for dog or something like that, they would pass in that large number that you gave them in the first call. And uh, that person would, the their receiver would then assume that that person's good for a certain amount of time or something like that. And I'm sure it's more sophisticated than that, but at a high level
1: yeah uh, i mean api security or like web service security is like a big topic uh and as with scaling up services you know kind of gets more and more sophisticated uh because you know as it depends on again right like on the context in which the web service is being used uh but uh, i i what what i would recommend like every developer uh, to do from the get go is is keep this consideration in mind uh because if you if you don't if you th- think of this when you've gone to production, you know maybe if you're featured on Hacker News, you know somebody might be trying to get into your service uh, and they might not have the best of intentions.
0: yeah, that makes sense. also it's it's um yeah, it's really important to this is just in general to use libraries and and to look at sort of the standard way of doing things i uh, I built a a website a really long time ago. And uh, I did this uh, authentication type thing with um, um, the one I just described, which is like very primitive. But I put the token in the, as a query parameter, like I put it in the URL. And so what happened is people went to my website and they said, oh, this is really cool. And they copied the URL and sent it to their friend. And they didn't know, but they were actually sending their friend the token, (laughs) So when their friend <laughs> yeah. went to the website, their friend all of a sudden was logged in as, as that person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, uh, and, and so that's an example of just, you know, I had no idea what I was doing. And mm-hmm. uh, I made something that was just completely insecure. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, you definitely yeah. want to, um, you know, use a lot of these like uh, OAuth 2 and things like that. I mean, they've gone through. And, and I remember when I integrated OAuth 2, I thought, oh, this is really strange. That they're, they're sort of having me jump through all these hoops. Um, but then in hindsight, it was, oh, yeah, that's because when you don't do this, other people just get everyone else's password. <laughs> so, <laughs> so when it comes Absolutely. to security, um, and this is true for everything, even if you need to encrypt, you know, a chunk of data in memory or something like that, you know, use LibSodium, use LibCrypto or GCrypt. Uh, you know, don't write your own AES or Blowfish or your own encryption algorithm. And just anything with respect to security, it's so, so important to uh, use, you know, off the shelf uh, products and Postman probably integrates with almost all of them.
1: Yeah, that's right. Actually, you know, Postman can help you do the opposite. Like it can help you break into stuff or you can can help you test for whether you are, you know, making a common mistake. Mm-hmm. So kind of going off that example that you mentioned that, you know, you uh, if you put, something inside the query parameter, you know, it's it's going to be copied. It's, it's more visible there and, you know, people will copy and send it to people. And of course, that's uh, uh, a breach of kind of security. Uh, one of the more interesting things, and this is something that we have seen in production scenarios, where people will put something inside an HTTP header and they'll think that, okay, this is not seen uh, by the user, right? They only see the URL. So maybe I'm safe like that and they will put some sensitive token inside the HTTP header. And uh, you know your HTTP header can be inspected by uh, Chrome's network inspector, or uh, we have an extension called the Postman Interceptor, which can capture calls and send it off to Postman. And it kind of captures the entire HTTP packet, which is basically your web service call. And you can see the entire set of things that are being sent uh, uh, from the server. And uh, if uh, if your uh, API security is not proper, then you can actually extract kind of you know things from the header. Uh, lots of interesting ways. I think I've seen people use use stuff, but you can use Postman for just you know a basic sanity check on whether your server is returning uh, something sensitive which you don't intend to. Uh, and yeah, you know, it, it can reveal some <laughs> surprises. Yeah, that Sometimes, makes sense.
0: I mean, you could have yeah. a list of Postman, uh, you know, fake accounts on your mm-hmm. website. And uh, if, if the Postman service logs in as somebody else, you know that mm-hmm. something's gone horribly wrong.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um,
0: what about like, uh, so, so, you know, if you do mobile development or even web development, um, there's this, there's this concept called gremlins and so actually, if, if you're out there uh, and you're a mobile or web developer and you haven't used Gremlins, you should check it out. It's really, really fun. Um, uh, I've used it a lot on web. I know it exists on mobile, but I haven't tried it there. But but uh, uh, for web, there's, I think, gremlins.js. And it, what it will do is it will literally um, do random things on your website. So in other words, it will click on random places in your website. Um, it will just type keys. It'll click and type keys, and then click somewhere else, and just ran, like it has no rhyme or reason. And, and what you'll find is that it uh, it will break your website, <laughs> like you, because know, you have sort of a <laughs> assumption in mind of how your website's going to flow. Um, and then this thing just doesn't care; like it will just type anywhere. It will type in the search bar, and then while you have you know the prefix search coming up, it will try to log in. Um, and, and you'll, your website will just fail in spectacular ways. The other thing it can do for web, which is particularly sinister, and a lot of people don't even bother protecting against this, but, you know, on the web, there's really nothing stopping someone from clicking buttons that are hidden, right? Just because you have a button hidden, uh, hidden is really just a little, you know, notation in the HTML. The button is still there. The, the code is still there, and people can click buttons that aren't visible, Um, and so this gremlins thing has an option where you can turn on, which gets really aggressive and it will try to, you know, unhide things and click them. And most websites break with that. Uh, is there something similar in Postman where it just does like basically a Monte Carlo and just tries all sorts of crazy API calls and sees if it can, it it can crash the endpoint?
1: Uh, so it's not kind of pre-baked in, but uh, you can build that in Postman. So Postman uh, Postman has a runtime built in that is uh, basically built on top of JavaScript. And what you can do actually is attach JavaScript calls, uh, JavaScript uh, scripts, JS scripts, before and after your API calls. So uh, think of it as a sequence of... Uh, Stuff you know. First, one script runs, then you make your API call, and then, uh, then, uh, and then another script runs. And this script, which we call a test script, can essentially analyze the response that is returned from that web service. So it's based. So what a Postman collection, which is the thing that stores all this stuff, can do is just uh, help you script any scenario. So you can do things like go one after the other or uh, you could change the flow of uh, how the collection will be run and go in like random directions or you can inject uh, you know like different kinds of data into the web service so one of the most common ways to kind of break a web service is to uh, you know inject like very large strings into the api call right and you wouldn't oh. want to kind of type uh, that stuff here manually you can just write that in the script that runs before the web service call and you know you can generate kind of fake data or there are interesting attacks that you can do for the service, which, you know, would probably want, you would want to make the server emit uh, some sensitive data, for example. So you can do all of that with Postman using the scripting runtime that's uh, that's there, and it's built on JavaScript, so it's kind of pretty, you know, simple and easy to use. So you can do lots of interesting things there. I mean, and, yeah, how... you could run it as a kiosk monkey kind of a thing, too.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's another word for that. How... how um... How do you prevent something like that? I mean, if let's say uh, you know, so on the browser you can log in with a username and password, right? And the browser <laughs> maybe if you type in a really long username, there's a check on the browser, some JavaScript <laughs> that runs on the browser. It says, hey, you know, username can't be this long. But someone can easily just bypass that, and they can make a call directly to your web service with a username that's you know 13 megabytes long or something like that. Yeah.
1: Yeah, what
0: are, what is the defense against that?
1: So, uh, I mean, I guess the first rule that you have to follow is don't rely on uh, client-side testing. So don't expect that, you know, that JavaScript uh, test uh, that you have on the client-side or in your app is going to prevent it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to write checks on the server side. Uh, so in your server code, typically this features in terms of, you know, sanitizers, uh, that run before you actually process any data that comes in from a user so one rule that uh, you know uh, you could follow is just don't trust user data the moment you kind of you know put a form out there and there is a field in which somebody can put in something just expect that there is going to be something malicious and then you check for how you are processing that data the moment it kind of hits your server and it goes to your application framework you would want to make sure that you sanitize it i'm sure there are tons of uh, libraries available to help you do that so just like you know the way you don't have to roll your own crypto library you can use something that's available in the open source world and use it to sanitize your data and finally when you work with uh, uh, you know user input uh, you uh, you ha- you kind of make sure that you have uh, checked for some of these things so a lot of this can be automated. Uh, some of this is just basic uh, kind of uh, awareness that you might want to have, making sure that uh, any any interface that you expose to the outside world will probably be hit with you know malicious data. And once you work with that assumption uh, and you chart out how this data is kind of flowing through your uh, uh, service kind of processing systems, you can take actions against it. In some cases you know, uh, just, just adopt a library or in other cases, just kind of, you know, make sure you have some basic checks in place.
0: Gotcha. That makes, sense. that makes sense. Is there like, my guess is there's probably, I don't know much about the HTTP protocol, but it probably has some maximum, uh, I guess, I guess, uh, like packet size or, or request size built in. So someone couldn't put in like, a 400 megabyte username or something like that. At some point, I guess the protocol itself would stop that, right? Uh,
1: Yeah, I think the protocol uh, prevents it, uh, prevents that sort of stuff uh, against like query parameters or URL characters. Uh, Where things can get a little hairy is when you have uh, request bodies. Request bodies could be arbitrarily large and and I think that buffer overflow attacks and things like that. So if you have like in in most servers uh the server will process the request and might just ignore the body altogether uh, so you don't have to worry about that and it would have those checks uh, which are protocol driven for uh, what is coming in as an input uh on query parameters or headers though you can do something malicious with that too i'm sure uh so, but when it comes to bodies i think uh i don't think the protocol uh, specifies a higher limit oh i've see. seen feature requests where people are like, yeah, I have like, you know, this this crazy file that I need to upload. And, and you know, on the client side, we run out of memory to process that request. But <laughs> I guess uh, the protocol allows for arbitrary large stuff.
0: Oh, I see. And so early on in the server, while you're reading this TCP stream at a really low level, you say, okay, you know, either the header says that this body is going to be, you know, a gigabyte, so I just forget about it. Or, you know, <laughs> I've read... 10 megabytes, and there's no way a username is even close to that. So I just drop the rest of the packet and close that request or something.
1: Yeah, I guess. I mean, I guess these checks would be built in in you know Apache or Nginx, which I'm guessing would be the more common options you'd be using at the server level. Uh, yeah, yeah, sense. I guess the server request size is not something we've seen a problem because people like you know are not rolling off their own servers. The the tricky part is always uh, in user input validation. Like that's the one that trips up a lot of people. Like you know a non-sanitized uh, uh, input or something like an XSS attack where people put in like JavaScript and you kind of store the JavaScript in your database and you render it as it is back into your web page and that can essentially reveal your cookies. So. Wait, can, more, you, can
0: you can you dive in detail on that? That uh, that went huh? over my head. So, so the idea is oh. you make a username that is JavaScript, and then when the server, yeah, can you run that by me again?
1: Yeah, sure. So basically, let's say you have uh, com- you have no sanitization on what a user will enter in. Let's say you know you have like a uh, sign-up form, and you're asking for somebody's name, okay, right? And somebody enters in a bunch of JavaScript in there. And what you have on the next page is that this uh, name is going to be displayed uh, after somebody submits the form, right? So somebody puts in some JavaScript code in there. This goes to the to your web service, and you're like, yeah, you know, I, I love my users. I trust my users. I'm going <laughs> to put this into the database. And when you go to the next page, you pick up the same value. And uh, uh, th- in some ways, this uh, thing can be crafted in a way that this piece of uh, in this piece of data will execute in the browser, right? And what happens is, I think this is called an excesses attack, where yeah, uh, cross-site
0: scripting attack.
1: Yeah. Right. So, uh, what when when this JavaScript executes, you know, uh, the, depending on what the way it's crafted, it can reveal some sensitive information uh, to the attacker.
0: Oh, I see. I see. So basically, like, uh, um, so yeah. So you have you know, a spot in your HTML for the person's name. And then you're just going to take the name out of the database and just drop it in that spot in the web page. Maybe it's in the top right or something like that. And what someone's <laughs> done is they've made their name, you know, start JavaScript, you know, you know, look at all the cookies, convert them yeah. to plain text, send them to my server in Russia and JavaScript. That's the person's username. And then, when that name gets <laughs> you know displayed on the top right uh boom that that executes cool yep. yep yeah that uh that that sounds pretty that sounds pretty dangerous um yeah, I think a lot of that postman could probably help with a lot of that because my guess is you could do some checks to make sure that you know data is uh you know if the person says Uh, yeah maybe you you could go into more detail on how that works like do people Mm -hmm. give you a spec and then you find if there's a way for you to violate that spec like how do people use Postman to do to 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 verify that their validation is correct Uh,
1: so the way it works in Postman is uh, you you would write a validation script for this so Postman is a pretty kind of flexible tool we don't like it's not specifically built for this use case, but we kind of give you the interface to kind of send API calls and then you have this uh, runtime that kind of executes uh, uh, these validations you know once you're gonna receive the response. so and then you can you you can automate the process. Right? oh, I see so, so
0: so you have like a postman yeah. automatic request where where every day at at two a m someone tries to make a <laughs> username called you know get all cookies. And, mm-hmm. uh, and every day that request fails. And the one day it doesn't fail, we get an email saying, hey, somebody you know, made the site insecure.
1: Yes, so in, in a nutshell, it, it would kind of work like that. You would have to go through a bunch of steps, like you would build a collection, you would uh, write your web service call, and then you would uh, test for this specific thing. You would run it manually, and then you would automate it as part of uh, your test suite. And then you can set up a post monitor uh, which will run this test against your service. So in the future, let's say you make uh, uh, some somebody makes a mistake, you know somebody comments something out, and this test kind of fails. Then you're going to get an email uh, saying that hey, you know something something's kind of wrong with your service, and a validation that you set in place is uh, not working anymore. Uh, the way uh, we've kind of built the product is that it doesn't have to come to a point where you deploy something kind of wrong in uh, uh, production. You can catch it either manually or uh, if you're doing your automation test suite, uh, uh, you're running it regularly. So typically you would catch it early on. And, uh, uh, you know, in the worst case scenario, of course, you know, you you can set up a monitor and the monitor would have to alert you.
0: Oh, that makes sense. So you have like a canary version of your web service and Postman's (laughs) the only person using that. And mm-hmm. uh, if you find some error, then it it won't uh, you know uh, roll your canary into the production version.
1: Exactly, right. So the way we have seen uh, systems to or or web service uh, deployments to kind of go is uh, people have a development environment that runs on your system. So you are writing code in your ID and you have all of this configured uh, on your local system. So you set uh, you you basically are developing on local host, and then you have a staging environment where your team is kind of working together and deploying kind of all your uh, web services and putting them together in one place and that that kind of acts as a check before you go to production and then finally you have the production environment which is what your users are seeing uh, so in postman actually we have a pretty cool feature called environments that helps you uh, take out parts of your request and convert them to variables and you define those variables in uh, these environments. So you could have a development environment, a staging environment, and a production environment, and each of these uh, environments will have like different values for the variables you set. So uh, you, you can set, like if you set the staging environment in Postman, all the calls that you are sending in Postman will now go to the staging environment, right? Or if you're running a monitor and you set the environment as production, all the calls will go to the production environment. So Postman kind of makes it very easy for you to uh, kind of work across different environments. And this is the typical setup that we have seen, you know, kind of like a three-stage thing. In some cases, it's it's more extensive. I think I've seen like uh, environments where there are like, you know, seven different kinds of like stages. Uh, but but yeah, you know, we, we kind of saw that and we built that into a feature called literally environments in Postman.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So, what about like uh, in terms of the product? Um, what's sort of the um, like like what's the pricing? Like, how, how does Postman actually work from a sort of product perspective or business development perspective? Like, you charge uh, per you know endpoint, or how does that work?
1: So, uh, Postman, you know, is is free for everybody to download and use for making calls. So there is no restriction on the number of calls that you can send because it kind of runs as uh, an application on your machine and oh, okay. you make the calls on your network, right? So you can just download Postman and use it as much as you want. Oh, cool. Is uh, it open
0: source right. or is it is it like, like, how does that work?
1: So all the core components of uh, Postman are open source. The application itself, like the desktop application is not open source, mm-hmm. but the runtime and the collection format a bunch of SDKs are all open source. Got it. So, uh, kind of going above from that, you can sign up for an account with Postman, and that's also free. And using that, you get access to a more advanced features in Postman, uh, like building mock servers. So you can build a mock server and simulate your uh, simulate the behavior of a request very simply, which is basically you know like sending an API call and returning like a fixed response. So you get that once you sign up. You can generate a documentation web page uh, through Postman, which will run in your browser. It's not tied to the app anymore. You can set up these monitors, and uh, uh, you know we'll make kind of calls for you uh, to make sure everything's working with your web service. And all of this stuff is also free up till a particular point. So you can make, for example, 1,000 calls through Postman monitors in a month, and then after a month, this will renew. So this is typically good for you know small projects or proof of concept things. And if you want to go, if you want to access more of this stuff, then you can become a pro user of Postman. And that, you know, is is at $8 per user per month. And uh, you get a lot more of uh, these advanced tools. And uh, uh, for our enterprise product, uh, you know, which is more uh, tuned towards, you know, larger companies, the price is higher. Uh, For for developers, yeah, yeah, you would be on pro.
0: Cool. So, So if someone wants to, you know, if someone's in their dorm room, and they've built something which, uh, returns basketball scores or something like that. Um, they can use Postman totally free. I mean, they're probably not going to hit the thousand query limit. Definitely not, you know, right away. And, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, yeah, they would be set for a while with, uh, just the, the free package. And then if all of a sudden their site becomes more popular than NBA.com, then you know, they have <laughs> all the infrastructure in place and they can scale up.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm guessing if, if you are at that level, then probably you're paying for other things a lot more than you'd be paying for Postman. Yeah, uh, totally. But uh, yeah, you know, you can uh, use it for as long as you want, for lots of interesting stuff. You can build uh, lots of interesting things in Postman for free. Uh, we have now uh, more than 5 million users across uh, the globe now. Postman is used in a lot of uh, university courses as part of uh, uh, you know, boot camps in um, uh, in, in, you know, uh, programming classes and stuff. And we are actively supporting that. So it's, it's kind of very exciting for us to, you know, see the product kind of being used in, uh, you know, essentially helping, uh, developers learn about APIs and web services.
0: Cool. Yeah, that's, that's, that's super, super cool. So tell us a little bit about the company. So what's it like, you know, working at Postman, where are you located? What's your, you know, office like, are you hiring these kind of things? There's a lot of people, uh, uh, listening out there who are uh, you? either looking for a job or they're, you know, they're in a university, which means they're almost certainly going to be looking for a job in the next few years and give them kind of a taste of what it's like, uh, you know, to work at Postman and uh, what opportunities there are.
1: Sure thing. Yeah. So we started uh, uh, as, as a startup in 2014 and uh, we've been growing pretty rapidly kind of since then. Uh, we have an office in San Francisco and we have an office in Bangalore and uh, We are hiring for uh, 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 lots of different roles. Uh, We have uh, kind of our marketing and customer success teams here in San Francisco. Uh, We have our developer evangelists here as well. Our engineering team is in Bangalore as well as our design team. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, I think now we are more than 50 people. So what Uh, is that? Can you just tell
0: people really quick what's a developer evangelist? A lot of people might not know what that is.
1: Sure, yeah. So developer evangelists for us, now traditionally developer evangelists basically try to kind of weave in uh, or they try to kind of explain a company's technology to other developers. They build interesting use cases for, for uh, uh, let's say, you know, the technology that the company has built on its own, but they also talk about uh, you know, open source tools and technologies and how things kind of fit together. And their job essentially is to make, you know, developers make the best use of uh, uh, components that are available in the developer ecosystem. So it's it's a lot of education. It's a lot of uh, uh, teaching. Uh, uh, some uh, a lot of coding as well, where you would probably be building, uh, you know, plugins or integrations with different technologies to kind of illustrate kind of new and cool use cases. Uh, you might be presenting at conferences or meetups. Uh, That's what our developer evangelists do. They kind of, you know, organize our meetup and tell people about, you know, interesting things that they could do with Postman. So it's a very, uh, it's, I'd say it's a relatively kind of uh, new role for uh, uh, the wider kind of startup ecosystem. Uh, Companies like, I guess, the bigger companies like Microsoft and Google have have more professional programs. But, uh, uh, you know, now you can actually work as a developer evangelist in a lot of startups and mid-sized companies.
0: Cool. That makes sense. And so uh, you mentioned you're in the city. So are you uh, you're in uh, maybe like a high rise in Soma or something like that?
1: Uh, yeah. So we recently moved to a new office. Uh, cool. Uh, and uh, it's on Market Street on 2nd and Market
0: okay yeah so cool. we got
1: uh, we were we literally started in the basement in sf we we started in a co-working place and then we moved one level up uh, to the second floor and now we are on the 11th floor nice so yeah as postman has been growing we're kind of moving up
0: yeah literally <laughs> in, moving in on, on up, up.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: very cool well yeah this has been really fascinating i mean i uh as i said i i made a fool out of myself building a website a while back and uh I still uh, I've learned a lot over the years but um, one of the biggest things I learned is to rely heavily on you know services and that allows the developer to really focus on the bigger picture which is you know tied to whatever they're they're trying to build and what, however they're trying to improve um, uh, you know uh, whatever kind of product space or human condition <laughs> or whatever they're focused on and so yeah this is another great tool and and the really nice thing about about uh, this, this uh, service this product you've built is that, um, you know, it sounds very accessible. Um, anyone can really get started using it. Um, people, a lot of people are now using web services for almost anything. Um, a lot of these things, like, uh, remember, Patrick, remember, uh, what was it called, the thing that was uh, kind of, uh, I want to say it was like Co- Corba or something like that. That is a thing, yes. But there, there were these, like, uh, other... Before web services really took over, there was, yeah, Soap was one of them, and there was these other yeah. ones where... Um, you know, Various, you could, yeah, RPCs. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could call, like, uh, you know, GRPC and, uh, you know, Thrift and these kind of things, put them in that category, although they're still around. <laughs> um, but but now pretty much everything has moved on to uh, web services. And so there's probably, you know, a bunch of people out there who have built... Um, you know, web services to as an accessory to an app that they're working on or a website that they're working on, and they could plug right into Postman, you know, for free and uh, and make sure that what they're building is kind of solid, um, which is which is really cool.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you. You know, glad you uh, you know, like the use case, you know, we we started like actually we have a stronger kind of hypothesis what we kind of started seeing from uh, you know talking to our users that uh, a lot of ways in which they're primarily developing actually kind of driven through web services you know you have lots of interesting apis available now uh, which you can just kind of drop in and call and you know you don't have to think about like every little detail um you know, you can, for example, use Stripe, and you can get like you know very powerful like payments platform working for you. Yeah. Uh, you can you know cause it. Uh, you can call AWS uh, S3 API, and then you kind of get a very powerful like storage API. And, and I really like the S3 API because it's kind of really small and kind of does so much for you. So what we kind of start seeing was that you know the way you will build software. Uh, of course, you have all of these other ways in which you will kind of be writing code and compiling code and kind of you know building the more traditional application. But that application is always either going to be, you know, using APIs or may might be just composed of APIs. So uh, yeah, you know, we we are, we are pretty excited about uh, this this whole thing because first of all, it's very accessible. You know, you have to use. Uh, yeah, I mean, these are all built of HTTP, so it's pretty. Uh, easy for you to use in any language, any framework, any which way that you want to use it. And it's super easy to kind of get started. You know, you don't have to like, you know, download like thousands of uh, dependencies or, you know, understand a very complicated uh, language, maybe like Korba or something like that. Like, uh, and that's really kind of helping this whole ecosystem grow very quickly. Uh, Know any conference that you kind of go to, like every company kind of has an API out there. And it's kind of becoming more of a prerequisite that uh, you know you you have APIs so that developers can build some uh, something more interesting. And you know they just don't have like people who are users of your product don't just have to depend on uh, yeah you know just what you provide out of the box. So yeah, it's a great time to kind of be a developer, you know, and build build cool stuff. Yeah, using definitely. Web services.
0: You know, a lo- one thing that I really didn't understand. Um, early on as a developer was uh, how to really combine languages, right? So, for example, you might find this really great library on GitHub, some open source library for, uh, let's say you're making a poker app and you find a really great library for telling you the hand. So, in other words, you just give it the seven cards if you're playing five card stud or something, right? You give it, you give it your, your set of cards and it will tell you, oh, you have a pair. Or you have a full house, or you have a flush, or something like that. And so, someone wrote some really great code to do that on GitHub, but it's in I don't know Go, the Go language. Mm-hmm. And you've written, you know, your whole poker uh, backend service in in Java, right? Well, so you know, you can do things like Swig and things like that, but it gets it gets ugly really quick. Like like trying to call one language from another. Um I mean, mm-hmm. I've done it before. it's not pretty. like you really don't want to do that. um and so what you ultimately what you want to do is 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 wrap that you know poker hand evaluator in some type of web service uh, or some type of service, and then have you know your java code call into that, even though it's on the same machine, um you know have your java code call you know access you know localhost port. Port seventy or something, and 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 you know pass in some poker hands and get back some scores. That might be easier than either having Java go through JNI to talk to Go, which is kind of a nightmare, or um, rewriting this entire open source library in another language. Right.
1: Right. Absolutely agree. So that's that's a recurring challenge, kind of in reusing software functionality, right, everywhere. So in some cases, things work out. You might find the. Uh, library that you want in your language, but uh, uh, when you build things off, uh, you know, in a web service, you can consume it kind of anywhere. Uh, there is that additional overhead of kind of running the service, but it's typically small in the long run. Uh, like the more interesting kind of aspect that we, uh, you know, I'm very excited about is when you kind of build a web service and you have it operate, uh, you know, pretty uh, reliably and robustly. Then you can actually uh, really build larger and larger pieces of your software pretty easily you know you, you know that this piece is going to stay this way and you have abstracted out all of its internal concerns maybe you know next time you you want to actually do want to write that thing in java but the things that depend on that web service only talk http right so you can really change uh, the internals of your web service and write it in a new way if you want to make it more performant in any other language but as the interface is set in HTTP, you uh, don't have to, you know, cause a disruption in uh, in in pieces of software that consume that service. So it really is, is like I feel like it's it's a nicer, cleaner abstraction for building, you know, larger pieces of functionality. And we are seeing that with you know kind of organizations adopting things like microservices or really using you know s- small APIs kind of uh, glued together rather than just going completely off, uh, you know, big pieces of uh, uh, software, monolithic packages, if you may.
0: Yeah, totally makes sense. Um, cool. Well, yeah, thanks again for coming on the show. Fascinating. I think, oh, let me um, give you a chance to, to tell everyone, uh, you know, what's, what's the, how can they, you know, get to the website? Um, you know, and also what social networks you're kind of most active on. Um, so that if they want to you know, get started, where's, where's, where should they go for that?
1: Sure thing, yeah. So we are at getpostman.com, so it's super easy to think about. Uh, you know, get and post actually are the first two HTTP verbs oh, which yeah. you will use in building right. your <laughs> web service. So yeah, think of that. And uh, it's getpostman.com, and that's where actually the name Postman also kind of comes from. Uh helps you post stuff. And, uh, yeah, we are on Twitter. Uh, we, that's where we are most active. Uh, my Twitter ID is A85, a85. so three characters. And uh, we are at Postman client for our official uh, Twitter ID.
0: Cool. Your, your Twitter handle is A85? Yeah. Wow. A three-letter Twitter handle. That's pretty cool. Were you really <laughs> you know, early I've, been, I've been
1: registering for these services very early on. Oh, so yeah. Did, <laughs> that's super <laughs> impressive. Gmailing.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, very cool. Alright, well thank you again and uh, yeah, people uh, people know how to reach you. It's only it's only three letters on Twitter folks, so if you have any questions for having off <laughs> um, just go for it. Cool, thanks a lot.
1: Well thank you so much and Jason, thank you so much, Patrick.
0: The intro music is Axo by Binar Pilot.